Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Philip Gerard. Before I tell you about his writing, though, I want to let you know that he was one of my professors when I completed my MFA in creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, way back in 2002 to 2005. He had a huge impact on me as a writer, but also as a reporter and a researcher. That's why I was so excited to talk with him about a couple of projects he has out right now. Gerard is the author of a new book about the Civil War. The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, was published in March by the University of North Carolina Press and was an extension of a series of nonfiction narratives that Gerard was writing for Our State magazine. Gerard is also the author of Cape Fear Rising, a novel that is set in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898 a time when wealthy white residents massacred the growing and successful black culture in the city. That novel was originally published in 1994. Blair, the publisher, has reissued the book in a 25th anniversary edition, in part because so much of what is happening in the United States today mirrors Wilmington in 1898. One reason that Gerard wrote Cape Fear Rising is fiction rather than nonfiction was because he wanted to try and get inside the heads of ordinary, everyday people and write about what happens when they know they should stand up to those in power. I wanted the reader to participate in that and ultimately for the, for the novel to be about what do you do when you're confronted with wrong? You know, what, what is your responsibility when all the people that you admire and want to be like are the people you have to you know, say you're, you're doing wrong? Gerard has written five novels and eight books of nonfiction. He also regularly writes magazine pieces that involve extensive reporting. For him, one of the hardest parts of writing narrative journalism is not only knowing that he has a historical detail or fact right, but knowing how and why he knows that he is right. In nonfiction, the hard part for me is always, and the thing you have to remind yourself is, even if you think you know really for sure what happened and you can't, you don't have a good source for it, you can't say it happened, you have to say it might have, it could have, probably happened, or what have you. And that, as you know, makes for clunky writing when you have to say, he might have done this and she probably did that. It, it's not the same as being able to build a scene and put them right into it. And so there are all kinds of technical ways you can make that work a little better. But it really is essentially an ethical point where you've got to say, well, even though I think I know that, I just can't assume that because what if I'm wrong? I'm creating a false fact. Gerard has written books like Creative Nonfiction, Researching and Crafting Stories of Real Life, and writing a book that makes a difference. He's also written nonfiction narrative books like Secret Soldiers, the story of World War II's heroic army of deception, and A Patron Saint of Dreams. 
He teaches in the BFA and MFA programs of the Department of Creative Writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Gerard's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Philip, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Hey, my pleasure to be here, Matt. I'm, I'm really excited to, to get to ask you questions uh, in this realm of uh, publishing and broadcast that didn't even exist uh, back when I was sitting in your MFA classrooms back in 2000, 2002 and 2003. I actually looked it up this morning to see uh, when I had your classes. Uh, so this is fun. That was great. Yeah, that was the dark ages. Huh? <laughs> it, was, it was very much the dark ages, I think. So um, uh, to start things off, uh, I, I'd love to talk about The Last Battleground. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that book and, and what, uh, what its focus is and, and kind of how it came into being? Yeah, The Last Battleground was a project unlike any I had ever done. It started as a series. It actually started as one magazine piece. An uh, editor from Magazine Our State, which is a regional southern magazine, called me and said, hey, how'd you like to do a piece on the Civil War for the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary? And I said, I don't know anything about the Civil War. And, and she said, yeah, that's exactly why we want you to do it. Um, and it fits right in with my kind of mantra. I think the writer needs two things, ignorance and curiosity. If you only have ignorance without curiosity, you're just a fool. But the two together can really spur you. So I did one for them. And then they said, how about we do one for every, you know, for, for the four years, we'll do one every month. And that turned out to be 50 installments was like writing a whole book every month almost. <laughs> right. And because there wasn't much of a run up to the series, I was researching and writing really, really on the fly as I went which had its advantages in that it terrified me, or disadvantages in that it terrified me. The advantage was, though, that as I would publish each installment, somebody would call me or email me or write me and send, say, hey, do you, wanna, you want these letters from my great-grandfather? Or, hey, I've got this artifact. I had a woman who showed me a receipt, original receipt for two mules that her great-grandmother had sold to Sherman's Army back in 1865. Wow. So this sort of stuff, and as I would go around, and of course I was going around to libraries and schools and whatnot talking about this, and people would come up to me and show me these things. But the rules were simple. The rules were that if we were going to use North Carolina as a way of looking at the whole Civil War, trying to get our arms around it, and it turned out to be the perfect state to do that because it was both a home front and a battleground. In fact, two huge, or three huge set-piece battles happened here, Fort Fisher, Aversboro, and then Bentonville. And then the great surrender that ended the war politically as well as militarily happened here. And in the meantime, you had a populace that was about half, the white populace was about half Confederate, half Unionist. And of course, fully one third of the population was enslaved African-Americans or free, what they call free persons of color. And they were certainly not Confederates. So it had everything you need to talk about the Civil War. And that one thing was that it was going to be all about North Carolina, North Carolinians as a way of focusing it. The second was it was going to be a present tense reported narrative as if the war were going on and as if I were out there covering it. And so I wanted to capture that sense of really terrible suspense that the people involved in it knew because they didn't know how it was going to turn out. We look back and historians look back and they say, well, of course, this was inevitable or of course, this had to turn out this way. They didn't know that. They really didn't know that. And then the other thing was, as much as I love generals and battles, we were tr going to try to make this personal. Because really to understand the war, you have to understand that it came into people's homes and backyards. It came into their towns. In some cases, it wiped out all the men in their town. And the generals and the battlefields are all fine for military historians to argue about. I mean, there's a whole 
a lot to be gained from that. But that wasn't what I was doing. I was really interested in the point of view of the private soldier, the woman who was left behind, the escaping slave who finds freedom and then goes back to fight to free up um, others of, of his kind. To um, I was looking at the nuns of the battlefield who came down from Canada, New York, and, and Ireland and were tending to the wounded on both sides. I was looking at the role of the railroads and the people who worked them and, and on and on like that so that it really became a war that took me or a project that took me into corners of the war that I didn't even know about before I started the project and, and each one opened up more. And in that way, the, the whole project taught me such a great deal that it became just a really hugely satisfying thing to do. And then, of course, I got the second shot at it, which was to make it into a book. And working with people at USC Press, we were able to reorder. Re- I went out and re-reported a lot of it. I re-edited it, rewrote, um, added new material, and corrected things that I had found out uh, were, were perhaps not as accurate as I wanted them to be. And uh, and so it really was a, a very very long satisfying road to get to the last battleground. What um, uh, you mentioned um, that you went to a lot of libraries was the vast majority of this research basically digging into archives. A lot of it was archives. So you know I went pretty much anywhere that there were Civil War memorabilia and places where you might not expect it. Like the the state archives has has Governor Zebulon Vance's papers. And that's all great for official things, but it's great for another reason, that he was this sort of father figure to people in North Carolina during the war, and women especially wrote to him. And so there are hundreds of letters from farm wives and the wives of soldiers and the mothers of soldiers, and they're asking him for personal favors. Can you can you find me some money? The, uh, the crops are failing. My kid's sick. Can you find me a doctor? Can you get my husband leave to come home for a little while? And so there's this whole treasure trove of original voices of women that probably otherwise wouldn't have been preserved, except they happened to write to the governor. And so there, there's a lot of that around. And then there were the packets of things that people sent to me. And then I went out as much as I could and I walked the ground. So, you know, I climbed up the parapets at Fort Fisher where the great awful fighting happened toward the end of the war. I went out to the site of the old prison at Salisbury where there was this mass slaughter of prisoners and they buried them in open pits. And there's now a national cemetery with these huge mounds under which are buried the fallen, some of whom were reportedly buried alive. I went out to Shelton Laurel and in the western part of the state where there was a massacre of 13 men and boys by Confederate troops. It was really kind of a, a feud almost in the western part of Carolina. So um, everywhere I could, I tried to go and be in the place where something happened. I ventured up to Virginia, to the Shimborazo Hospital, to um, the crater, uh, the site of this amazing mine explosion by Pennsylvania troops that was then supposed to be exploited by black troops, what they call the USCT, the U.S. Colored Troops. And at the last minute, they're pulled back. Inexperienced men go right into the crater, and there's this amazing slaughter of troops. Uh, so I, I try. I even visited Sherman's boyhood home in Ohio, you know, <laughs> just trying to get a feel for what their lives were like. Uh, I handled the instruments of amputation from a doctor that was also a historian, you know, handled their weapons, talked to reenactors, figured out how things worked in those days, just to really get get a kind of an immersion into it that was sort of reporting through all five senses. As of course, every journalism school will teach you. And though I'm not a journalism by training, I find that to be a very valuable thing. So I was as much as possible trying to be there in the place, see the original documents and get rid of preconceptions and try to figure out what the facts on the ground were like for the ordinary person. Yeah. 
Um, one, I, I wrote a piece, uh, what feels like forever ago now, but it was only five or six years ago, uh, that was mostly archival based research as well. Um, and I found the hardest thing uh, with that was making that, that research come alive in the writing. Um, how, 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 how do you do that? <laughs> how do you pull that off? <laughs> about the hardest thing in the world for a nonfiction writer to do is to create a scene in history in which you were not present where the people are long dead and can't actually tell you what it was like. And I, you know, there's a great deal on the internet, which is a wonderful place to start, but I love handling the original documents because then, for example, you see their handwriting. So this guy, Julius Leinbach, who's a musician and he admits in his diary, which is, you know, about the size of a deck of playing cards that he joined the army, the Confederate army, because he was afraid of being conscripted and he didn't want to kill anybody or be killed. So he got it into his head since he was a musician to get his whole Moravian band to join as a band. And so they become the 26th regimental band. They go on to become the most storied band in either army. They're famous uh, among other things for bringing home their music after the war. They were all captured, imprisoned, but they saved their sheet music. So anytime you hear reenactors playing sheet music from the era, you know, playing a version of Dixie or playing a version of Lorena or whatever. They're playing their arrangements. Uh, but you can look at his cramped handwriting, and he was a bookkeeper. So he was used to writing very neatly, very small, you know, keeping ledgers. And you get a sense from looking at the stains on his diary, you know, the, um, the devil's teardrops that they use to dot the I. You get a sense of personality, and it begins to feel more like a living moment than like some piece of paper. And it's really hard to get that from typewritten documents, you know, transcriptions on the internet or what have you. I remember opening one uh, one uh, diary like that and uh, it was talking about going into a camp uh, up on the James River after a battle and and how the fields were finally blooming. It was spring. And there I turned the page and a, and a dried flower petal fell out. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's it. I'm in that field. I'm with him. There's been a horrific battle and now they're resting. And he's noticing the flowers and thinking I'm alive. And so that, that sort of captures the feeling and it, and it infuses the words with um, a, a sense of being there rather than just kind of coming across it as a dry artifact. What was the the biggest challenge, uh, especially when it came to then pulling this all together as a book? <laughs> the biggest challenge, in a way, is that it kept getting bigger and bigger. Right. Every every story led to another. And then the other thing was that I quickly found out that every fact that I thought I knew for sure about the Civil War was either wrong or not true in the way I thought, or true but in a much more complicated way. And every time I read something from one historian, I'd find another historian who would contradict it, uh, even to the extent that the number of people who died in the war, when I started the project, was widely thought to be around 620,000 troops, on, you know, combining both sides. And then by the end of the project, uh, you know, four years later from the original project, it was up to 800,000 or so. I thought, well, the war's been over 150 years. <laughs> you know, nobody knew has died. They're finding out stuff. They're they're re, uh, revisiting estimates and old records, and I, I suspect the whole toll will be closer to a million by the time they count civilians, all those freed uh, and liberated slave people that were not counted, um, civilians who were not counted, all the unmarked graves. I think it's going to. So even the most basic fact of who was present at a certain place or time and what happened there and and how many people lived or died is always something that's uh, up for grabs and pinning that down was 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 sort of uh, mind-boggling i have to say
there's one thing in the book that that I, I read early in the book um, that that made me think that not a lot has changed in this world, uh, and and that was how the rich could essentially buy their way out of fighting in the Civil War. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I'd love to know if there were other things uh, that you learned as you were researching that that made you see parallels uh, w- with today's world. Yeah, one of the things that happened immediately, the Confederate government uh, in a war that they were saying was this is for your your you know your freedom from the tyranny of the government in Washington. The very first thing they did practically was to have the first conscription laws in the in U.S. history and began conscripting men. You know, be, between like eighteen and thirty-five, I think the initial was. And by the end of the war, they were taking junior reserves as young as seventeen and and much younger and as old as fifty and fifty-five. So. That was the first thing. The second thing was they said, and by the way, if you're a slave owner with 20 slaves or more, you get an exemption. And what this meant was, that, and that was to, they're purportedly to be able to keep order on the plantation so there was no slave revolt, which they were always afraid of. But in fact, what happened, if you owned 100 slaves and you had, say, four sons, you would each take 20 slaves and then all of you would stay out of the war. And they would just mark them up that way. So early on in the war, particularly in North Carolina, this was labeled by Governor Vance and others as a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. And it was a bone of contention throughout the war. And it was one of the things that actually divided uh, North Carolina and many people in the South who were not slave owners, had no truck with it. And in fact, um, were competing with slave labor for their own, you know, they were yeoman farmers or tradespeople. And they're having to compete with this, essentially this corporate enterprise that has you know, anywhere between 100 and 1,000 people working free to make it happen on behalf of a plantation owner. So that, yeah, something's never changed. The rich can figure out how to get out of it. Um, one of the things that I found kind of fascinating about this was that, okay, this war lasted for about four years. There were something like 10,000 named battles, which is a lot of fighting in four years, especially considering they hardly ever fought during the winter. The spring and the summer were the campaigning season. But the um, the number of miles that these armies traversed, mostly on foot, to go here and there, and the and if you start looking at individuals, um, whether it is uh, uh, you know, Dr. Betts, who is this itinerant preacher who's working with the army, or whether you're looking at a, a surgeon or whoever, they're covering all kinds of territory on horseback and wagon and train and on foot. And if you were to map their progress through the war, it would just darken the map of Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maryland, South Carolina, as they as these people traveled around. So they were a restless bunch, and they were moving around quite a lot. And that was, I guess, another thing that, that fits with uh, kind of contemporary life. We tend to pe- see these people as staying put, and in fact, they were moving around quite a lot. And then, you know, the old, uh, the old verities, love and loss and grief and friendship, they're all there. I mean, uh, the women writing, come home, we need you, especially later in the war when uh, North Carolina was being threatened, uh, never from the north. It was always the west, the south, and the east was how North Carolina was invaded by the U.S. troops. And these women are saying, what are you doing in Virginia? Come home to your family. And so uh, you have huge numbers of North Carolina men and some others uh, hiding out in the western mountains of North Carolina to avoid the war. They weren't all gung-ho. So just like any war, there were those people who were all for it. There were those people who were uh, afraid of it. And, and uh, there was a lot of, um, of that going on. But there were also people who just simply didn't see the point of it. And they understood that it was going to be wreckage uh, as long as the war lasted. Things were going to get worse and worse and worse, particularly in the South where most of the battles were fought. And, and that turned out to be true. You said earlier that, uh, that 
as you were doing all of this research, it kept opening your eyes to, to think you didn't know before. And, and that made me start to think uh, about Cape Fear Rising. And I was curious if you learned anything new in this research that made it, might have had an impact on, on Cape Fear Rising, on, on your writing of that novel. Sure. Cape Fear Rising is, you know, it's about a white supremacist coup d'etat in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, when the these uh, white Democrats in those days had decided to so-called take back their city and their state from what they called black rule. And Wilmington had turned into a majority city, partly because, by the way, Sherman had left 25,000 freed African-Americans, uh, sent them down from Fayetteville when he reached there on his march from Savannah to Goldsboro. And so they, many of them settled in Wilmington, and Wilmington became a majority city, majority black city, rather. Um, what really came home to me was that regardless of anybody's motives, and, and the individual motives in fighting the Civil War were as various as there were people, but politically the war was about slavery and founded on the doc, doctrine of white supremacy, period. I mean, it was really foundational to the Confederacy, to their governing documents, foundational to their culture, especially foundational to their economy. You know, this was a great gig if you were a white plantation owner. You could have all these people working for you for free, making and, and they're they're not only don't have to be fed, they're raising their own food, they're preparing it, they're preparing your food, they're building the only the places where they live, they're driving your wagons, they're raising your horses, and you know, they're every time you you get a slave born on the plantation, you have another free worker that you can either sell or and so it's a very cynical calculation, but it's it's foundational. So in 1898, essentially what you have are a bunch of either ex-Confederate officers, people like Alfred Moore Waddell and Colonel Roger Moore and others, uh, William Rand Keenan, or their close associates or sons or people who are affiliated with that. And they've decided they're no longer going to accept the verdict of the Civil War. They're going to turn back the clock and try to get back to the way things were. They want all good paying jobs going to whites. They want blacks in a subservient position. They want them out of power. They don't want them to be cops. They don't want them to be firemen. They don't want them, especially on the city council board of aldermen, what have you. And so they're really, uh, so, so really the Civil War is the backstory to 1898 in Wilmington and to the novel Cape Fear Rising. I think uh, it's uh, important to mention that that Blair uh, Publishing, uh, the publisher of, of Cape Fear Rising, which came out in 1994, uh, has reissued it as a as 25th anniversary edition. Um, I think because of the parallels to today, it, it, would that be accurate? Yeah, in fact, um, I had approached the Blair had went through a reorganization and now is functioning as a nonprofit. They've got a nice stable kind of uh, model to go on now, and their idea is to take stories that are rooted in a regional uh, landscape, but to get them out to a much larger uh, storytelling or story reading public. And I think that's this book is perfect for that because I would have thought 25 years ago, 1994, that Cape Fear Rising was going to be a kind of a curiosity. Look, well, that happened, you know, even though, by the way, in, in 1994, as I'm researching it, I attended a Klan rally as part of my research right here in Wilmington. So it wasn't that far, you know, in the past. But I thought, OK, 25 years from now, this is we're going to be so far beyond this. And then we see Nazis marching in Charlottesville with torches. We see white supremacists killing, slaughtering, you know, black churchgoers in Charleston. We see the Klan rallying in North Carolina and South Carolina, celebrating our new president and a new party that is avowedly, uh, you know, a white supremacist party. So it it seemed so relevant. And so I contacted Lynn York, who was the new publisher, and I said, look, I, you know, this is the book's never gone out of print, but I'd like to 
be able to get it out there again to a new audience, uh, really promote it, uh, get a forward, Randall Keenan who did a forward to it for making that connection. And then I wanted to include an afterward that talked about the backlash to the original publication and, and also some of the good things that happened on account of it, some of them bringing together uh, for these sort of cross-racial, interracial dialogues that I thought really needed to happen and some of the progress that I think the book helped to make possible. But yeah, it is, it is sadly all too relevant today and it's a real cautionary tale. How did you originally find uh, find out about what happened in Wilmington in 1898? Because in so many ways, it w- it's a forgotten tragedy. Well, it not only had been forgotten, it had been deliberately repressed. And, and that was true in the white community, which after a point had stopped bragging about it and decided they were just going to pretend it never happened. And also in the black community, where a lot of people were afraid bringing it up would bring some wrath down on their head. So... You know, when I moved to Wilmington, I noticed that it was extremely segregated. I mean, anywhere you went was either all white or all black. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I'd ask around, and I had an African-American colleague who said, well, that was the riots. But he wasn't any more specific, and he soon left. And other people would say, oh, that's, you know, the 20s when the National Guard had to go in the black community. And, oh, that's when the blacks burned down the courthouse. Well, you know, the courthouse is still there. It's stone and brick. It didn't go anywhere. <laughs> So I decided to find out what had happened, and I started looking around the local history room where I got a kind of frosty reception at the county library, went into our university library, and I, I came up with a few things that began to tell the story. And then I, I said, okay, this is an amazing story, and nobody's talking about it. And there had not been a novel about it since Charles Chestnut's The Marrow of Tradition way back at the turn of the 20th century. And I thought, you know, I want to write about this, and but I don't want to, you know, I, I wanted to do it kind of quietly. I, I wanted to get only primary sources and not get any sort of gauzy family tales or what have you. And so I just began a year-long systematic looting of the archives, so the Wilson Library in Chapel Hill, the Library of East Carolina, the Library of Duke University, the local history room here, my library, the Latimer House downtown by the Lower Cape Fear Historical Society is, and you know, went as far afield as Maryland up to Aberdeen to the, the Ordnance Museum to see what rapid-fire you know, weapons looked like in the 1890s. And the picture that emerged was remarkable. Um, and detailed. There was plenty of documentary evidence. I mean, it wasn't like I had to make this stuff up. And so my ethic in writing the novel was every public thing that happens, whether it's a speech or a bit of violence or a massacre or a mob riot or what have you, all of that is as accurate as I could make it based on the material that I had, which I think is pretty accurate. No historian has ever taken me to task for that. And then I wanted to get in the voices of people who are not named. You know, it's always the people who win. It's always the prominent people who leave behind the paperwork and their, you know, the justification of what they did. So I created some characters who are more lowly, shall we say, or down on the pecking order socially, and their stories get told uh, who the characters I've created. And I essentially wanted that book to be about how you tell a story in the sense that I think you know, there, there's sort of three ways of telling history. There's one in which you really just falsify the narrative and you get your own agenda out there. And you see that again and again, where people justify what they're doing. And then there's the kind of really honest to God academic history where historians painstakingly try to reconstruct what happened, why, what the implications were and so forth. And then there's a sort of uh, what I think of as an aspirational history, which if you do it right, is as accurate as the the thing that the scholar is doing. You're really working from facts, from good sources, from primary sources. And, and you're acknowledging 
all the things that are wrong, but you're also maybe letting a crack of daylight in saying, okay, we're, we're not just going to flog ourselves over this. Um, here are the ways in which we're aspiring to do better. You know, here are the ways in which some people have showed, you know, their, their shining courage or their shining ability to transcend this, whatever this is, the racism or the violence of the day. And so in Cape Fear Rising, you know, I, I'm hoping that it's not just a, a kind of a really dark tale, but that it inspires people to look at the fundamental decision that the narrator has to, or the main character, Sam Jenks, has to make, which is, do you tell their story? Do you get co-opted and do the thing that puts you in the club and makes your life very easy and comfortable? Or do you stand up and tell the truth? And I think telling the truth often takes more courage than physical actions. You know, you see it in, you know, city council meetings, you see it in Congress, you see it in when people, you know, are standing on a street corner or in a cocktail party conversation, that it takes courage to say, excuse me, that's the wrong thing. Let me, let me tell you the truth. And so that's his decision. And I wanted the reader to participate in that and ultimately for the, for the novel to be about what do you do when you're confronted with wrong? You know, what, what is your responsibility? when all the people that you admire and want to be like are the people you have to you know, say you're, you're doing wrong. You may have answered this a little bit um, uh, uh, just maybe a few minutes ago, but, but what ultimately, why, why did you ultimately decide to do it as, as a novel um, and not try to go straight nonfiction like, uh, like your book Secret Soldiers, which is, it, which is obviously also historical, but, but is straight nonfiction? Sure. When Secret Soldiers, I was trying to create the record. There was no book about those guys. These were the, the secret actors and, and sonic technicians and, and so forth that did deception in World War II. Their story had never been told, and their stuff had been classified for years. So I was really the first on the scene with all that, and I wanted to get it absolutely right and create as unassailable a historic record as I could for them. In Cape Fear Rising, all of that material was already in the archives. I mean, any historian, and, and many have since gone back uh, following the publication of my book and done more historical treatments, of it. and that's fine, but there was really no doubt about what happened. Creating a record was not really the thing. I was much more interested in looking into the interior lives, the motivations of people. You know, how could you be a family man? How could you be a, um, a preacher going, standing up in the pulpit on Sunday, talking about the love of Jesus Christ, and then go out the next day and shoot people on the street who are your neighbors? You know, how could you be known for philanthropy? And oh, by the way, you're out there leading troops who are you know, conducting firing squads in the black community. How can you, do, how can you reconcile that? And that's what I was after. And, um, and I wanted to be able to create a drama or at least a dramatic sense of what went on in all those secret meetings the plotters held. Because the thing was very deliberate. And, of course, they didn't leave behind minutes. You know what they were thinking about when they went in because they were not shy about it. You know what they did after they came out. And I wanted to be able to create the scenes inside that room, which I could pretty reasonably do. I felt pretty confident in that based on having the before and the after picture. But the project of the novelist is much different, I think, than the nonfiction writer in that regard. I really wanted to get the motive. And I really get the reader participating in that sense of decision about you know what moral stance do you finally take on all this? Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, this is Gangry the podcast, and and I'm Matt Tullison. I'm talking with Philip Gerard, the author of a great number of books. Uh, most recently, The Last Battleground, and a reissue of Cape Fear Rising. Um, when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about Cape Fear Rising. Uh, this is Gangry the podcast. 
Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Philip Gerard. Philip's book, Cape Fear Rising, has just been reissued by Blair as a 25th anniversary edition. Um, Philip, was, was Cape Fear Rising your first book, correct? No, no. I had published, uh, I published a book called Hatteras Light, which was about a historical novel about lifesavers on the Outer Banks during the First World War. And uh, when Cape just, I can't remember if it came out just before or just after Cape Fear Rising, but I did a book called Desert Kill, which was a novel that was about a serial murderer out in Arizona. I think so, sort of far afield. <laughs> I, I, I've read all three of those, and I guess I was just not sure on on the order in which they came out. Um, I'm not sure either. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember in grad school asking you about Desert Kill, and, and you told me that you um, wrote that book in the middle of the night, like because that's yeah, what the, I, did. I was I was teaching night classes, and I would come home around nine thirty or so, and. Uh, and sit up till three or four in the morning writing, and it because it's a dark book, and and uh, so there's even parts of it that are from the point of view of the killer, and so inhabiting that uh, was a little bit spooky and creepy. Right, right. Well, well, getting back to uh, Cape Fear Rising, which is also kind of a dark book as well, um, but the main character in the book you mentioned is Sam Jenks. Uh, he travels to Wilmington uh, as a relative of one of the city's richest men, um, but also to work as a newspaper reporter. Um, and it seems to me in so many ways that that is the perfect job for like a character to have, uh, you know, in this in this no- novelized version of, of what happened, um, given that he can watch things unfold before him. Um, is that is that what is that what you were thinking? Yeah, very much so. I mean, and his wife is a school teacher and a white school teacher and a white newspaper man are probably among the only white people who could travel with some, um, you know, they could travel back and forth among many communities. They could go into the wealthier boardrooms. They could go into the poor communities. They could go into the black community because they're, they're seen as a non-threatening. They're not authority figures. And in Sam's case, I was very careful not to create a character who would kind of come into the South with this superior moral Yankee sensibility. You know, Sam is kind of a failure. His, you know, his biggest claim to fame is that he misses the charge up San Juan Hill. He's covering the the war in Cuba as a correspondent, but he's he's sleeping off a bed drunk, you know. And he misses the whole show, and so um, his wife and he come to Wilmington. They have an invitation. He doesn't quite know why he's been given this chance, but really he finds out when he gets there that he's been invited to become kind of the chronicler for this white supremacist resurgence and to lionize some of the, the main figures in it. And his wife's concern, Gray Ellen, is concerned that he simply finally man up and make a life for them both. And she becomes kind of his conscience that, uh, and she in, in many ways is my favorite character in the book because she's the one constantly saying, you have to be better. 
You just have to be your best self. I know it's hard. I know you don't want to. I know you're tired. I know there are things you want. I know all that, but stand up and be the man I know you can be. And so she is, she's fierce and lovely in that regard. And, um, and I, and she is one of the main reasons why I think, you know, he, he comes through to the extent he does, but I really didn't want him to be this character who would come in and be all morally superior. He is struggling with his own inner demons and, uh, and he has to find courage. And my, I guess my point in a way is it's easy for strong confident people to have courage and to do the right thing. It's harder when, you know, you're, you're not necessarily as strong constitutionally or when you're in a vulnerable position because people have power over you or when you don't have as much money or as good a health or what have you. But you know, the responsibility is still there for all of us. What was the ultimate um, reaction uh, when, when the book originally came out? Well, there were two two really polarly opposite reactions. One was that you know lots of people in the black community I heard from were like, "Thank God!" In fact, one of them said, "He said, I hate to tell you this, but now that a white boy has written this, maybe somebody will actually believe it, because they felt that um, that lent a certain credibility." And one of the things that I noticed immediately was I would give readings, and they were it was the first time I'd been in a room where black and white were in the audience in big numbers. And my readings got shorter and shorter because the question and answer got longer and longer. And ultimately, they were talking to each other, which is really great. And people were asking questions that they had sort of wondered about. They were saying things, uh, giving uh, testaments of, of their own experience and trying to sort this out. And that became kind of really good. On the other side, it was a wall of how dare you do this? Of how dare you use the names of real people in a historical novel? And my answer is, well, you know, ask Charles Dickens and Tolstoy and Michael Shara and all the other great historical novelists we've had and how they felt about it. My feeling was these guys did this. There's no doubt about it. The record's pretty clear about it. And it would be like saying that uh, you're writing about the Battle of Gettysburg and not naming Robert E. Lee, calling him Johnny Smith. And that wouldn't be accurate. You know, this is these guys did it. They were pretty out front about it. They even got together in 1905 and celebrated their roles for a stenographer and published a pamphlet about it. So it wasn't like they were hiding from what they'd done. Uh, so I didn't I didn't feel like I'd done anything that was wrong in that regard. But the the blowback was pretty intense. Um, invitations that were rescinded. Uh, I found out just in the past year that the board of trustees tried not to give me tenure over this book which would have meant, of course, I'd been fired. And as you know, the tenure process is the end of a long string of having been by, you know, your department, your chair, your college, your college committee, your dean, your provost, the university committee, ultimately the chancellor, and then finally the board of trustees. And they were going to deny my tenure based on this, which um, they ultimately didn't because one of the actual descendants of uh, the, the people involved stood up for me, Owen Keenan, his name was. Um, but it does mean that it's kind of like uh, finding out in adulthood that you were adopted. You know, that he's, <laughs> I've been here 30 years now, so I'm looking back on like the last, you know, 25 of them, thinking, okay, what else don't I know about what was going on when it came to my uh, my my fortunes here? Uh, and then there were the usual kind of anonymous phone calls, and there would always be somebody at a reading who would stand up and accuse me of making it up. Or would resort to that justification. Well, that's just how people were in those days. And, and that's not true. And we know it's not true because there were good people in Wilmington, in America, back in 1898, who understood that white supremacy and the violence against blacks was, was not 
a right thing. It was a wrong thing, and they stood up against it. So, uh, but yeah, it was. There was a fairly. There are places in Wilmington still that I uh, that I'm vilified. <laughs> Um, but, you know, that's um, I guess I was a little naive in thinking that the history had been more settled than it was when I wrote the original book. But now I've just come to accept it and think, well, the one thing that's true now that wasn't true when the book was published is that nobody denies that it happened. It's become part of the civic story now. There's even a monument now. There have been uh, you know various other kinds of, of um, ways of acknowledging it. So at least now we've, we've come one step further. You, you've actually written a book on, on how to do research for creative nonfiction, and, and I'm curious, um, and, and I think I took that class with you uh, in the fall of 2002. I actually looked at my transcript this morning, so um, uh, I'm the journalist doing the research right here. So um, the uh, when you do research for a novel or for fiction, uh, do you go about it differently than when you're doing research for nonfiction? Uh, not not really. The research process is a lot the same. I mean, you're still diving through archives. You're still walking the ground. I mean, for Cape Fear Rising, I actually went out and timed how long it took to walk between sites where I know the mob walked. I went into the, the uh, tunnels underneath the city, uh, which were used. They were first drainage tunnels, but probably also used for smuggling and probably for underground railroad activity or what have you. Uh, you know, I got a guy to take me down there. I went out to the swamps on Smith Creek, uh, where blacks hid out on the night of November November 10th of 1898, where where they were in a cold rain. So I went out there, you know, pretty much in the same weather, same time of year. Uh, so that kind of research is the same. And uh, and for Cape Fear Rising, because it's a historical piece, I didn't really do interviews. Uh, in the way I might for something that was more contemporary. You know, I've done interviews, if I'm writing about something that happened in the, you know, 1940s, 1950s, and I can find someone who remembers it and I can talk to them, I'll do that. But uh, it's, I think, what you do with the research that's finally a little bit different. I've, I've often done research, I'm writing a novel right now on the Great Dam at Fontana, which was built during World War II and this sort of breakneck, everything was done fast in World War II, and they built this entire dam for, it took them a little over three and a half years between the time they actually started clearing the land and the time the dam was generating electricity, which is unheard of. It would take 25 years today. And they lied about the whole project. They said they were going to electrify the valley. What they were doing was providing electricity for the nucle nuclear plant at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, across the mountain. So I researched that I did a huge um, magazine piece on it, but I'm also writing a novel based off some of the same research and some of the interviews I did for that. And it'll be very different. You know, the people will be all made up, but the facts of the dam and the construction of it will all be part of it. So it's really, I think you do the same kind of research, but then you do something different with it once you've got it. What's the hardest thing um, for someone who uh, does a lot of nonfiction to also do fiction? Like for me, like, you know, I've, I've, I've only written fiction in workshops <laughs> in grad school. Um, and it's just it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, um, you know, because, I, you know, I spent so much of my life in newspapers, uh, I think was part of the problem. But like, how do you make that transition? Well, I think in some ways fiction is fiction takes off the the um, the leader. Fiction allows you to say, you know, let's think about the most interesting way the story could have happened. Like in the Fontana Dam, I interviewed a bunch of people who grew up there during what their fathers all worked on the dam, and they were essentially running wild because their fathers were working, you know, twelve-hour shifts, sleeping for twelve hours, doing this seven days a week, and their mothers are working. Um, 
but but I can now I know their stories and now I can build on that and I can make them even a little bit wilder than they were. In nonfiction, the hard part for me is always, and the thing you have to remind yourself is, even if you think you know really for sure what happened and you can't, you don't have a good source for it, you can't say it happened. You have to say it might have, it could have, probably happened, or what have you. And that, as you know, makes for clunky writing when you have to say, he might have done this and she probably did that. It's not the same as being able to build a scene and put them right into it. And so there are all kinds of technical ways you can make that work a little better. But it really is essentially an ethical point where you've got to say, well, even though I think I know that, I just can't assume that because what if I'm wrong? I'm creating a false fact and people are going to take it as a true fact. So, um, and I, I do a lot of magazine work, and I'm always having conversations with fact checkers about how do you know this? Because that's always the project of nonfiction, as you know. It's like, how do you know what you're telling me? And how good is the information you're relying on to make this statement? And, uh, you know, right now we're, I'm doing a piece, and we're trying to figure out who played a certain basketball game. We have really good sources to say, on the one hand, it was Duke versus UNC. On the other, it was Wake Forest versus UNC. And it's it's like impossible to figure this out. There, every every time you find a new source, it's some new person weighing in. I have the schedule from the TV station that says they're televising Wake Forest, but I got a historian from Duke saying no, it was Duke. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the sort of thing that drives you crazy. Which, as a fiction writer, you would just say, well, what would be the most interesting game, and you would write it that way. As a nonfiction writer, you know, you have to be pretty sure which one it was. Um, this this question doesn't maybe doesn't have much to do with your own writing, but I'm I'm curious how much MFA programs and, and you could even speak specifically about UNCW. Um, how much have they changed in the last decade? It's been 14 years since I've been <laughs> since I've been there. Uh, what type of work are students doing that that excites you? I, the 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 changes I've seen in MFA programs generally and ours in, in particular, very in particular, is we from the beginning had an ethic of let's create the kinds of courses and program we wish we'd had. Like I never took a course in writing the novel or the long form. So we've developed one and it's a year long thing and people are doing book projects and they're doing amazing writing that you can't do when you're just doing short bursts and say writing short stories or essays. We're doing, I'm doing a songwriting in the creative process, a mixed class undergraduate and graduate for the second time. And that turned out to be like an amazing thing. These students would come in and, and they were so, in, in certain ways, very intense about their own work, their poems, their fiction, their nonfiction. And this gave them a way of like, oh, I don't have to be a good songwriter. I just have to do these things and see, see where they go. And so because they relaxed into it, they did amazing work. And then that fed back into their own chosen genre. So we're doing things all the time that are different from the conventional, like we all read a thing and we all sit around and critique at workshops. And even in my own workshops, I've done a lot more in the way of directed writing, especially at the undergraduate level, but even at the MFA level where you're saying, forget about writing a 20-page short story or a 20-page essay. Let's let's do something really short that you can do in two paragraphs to, to, to learn, really learn a principle of writing, whether that principle is how to create a metaphor that works or how to uh, get a character on stage or how to paint a, a, a scenic picture of a place that's historic or whatever and, and nail that down. And if you're not invested in it, great. But if you are, hey, it's the beginning of something you can now go home and finish. So lots of stuff like that. And um, I find uh, in nonfiction, a lot of my students are writing a lot more personally now, which I, I always think the best writing is where the personal takes on the public. So you have 
a personal take on something that has a, a much larger application in the culture. Uh, and some of the best, I think, are doing that. Um, they're, they're just, you know, I always joke that I probably couldn't get into our MFA program. <laughs> I guess probably true, at least as I was back when I was going into the MFA program in Arizona. I mean, they're coming in with amazing uh, talent, but also amazing accomplishments. Many have already taught overseas. Many have been doing work in the inner cities in you know literacy programs. Many have done other things. Um, you know, they're retired from the Coast Guard, the Marines, or they're, they've, you know, they've got a whole resume behind them, and they're bringing all this great material to the table. You know, they're not just sort of raw 20-year-olds saying, well, you know, what can I write about? And, and that, that gives a certain kind of gravitas. If you, if you have even one person like that in a workshop, it raises everybody's game. And they go, oh, I get it now. You know, you have to really have something important to write about. And, and you've got to make it about the reader, and the reader has to understand that it's important. So, you know, it, it's a very vibrant, exciting thing, and it's kind of the, the best thing about the life that I lead, I guess, is I get to hang out with these just smart young people who are always challenging me to kind of be smarter and be better and be a better myself. Well, Philip, it has been uh, so great to talk with you uh, again. Uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. It's great talking with you, and you're one of those people. <laughs> I've been talking with Philip Girard, the author of The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, and Cape Fear Rising, a novel. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Girard's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program, and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. On the next episode, I'll talk with Latria Graham, a writer, editor, and cultural critic in South Carolina. Graham has written for everyone from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to ESPNW, to The Guardian, along with many more publications. Look for that episode sometime in the next couple of weeks.